I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And on today's show, we explore the national debate over the Constitution and sanctuary cities. In January, President Donald Trump issued an executive order that cut off federal funds from city and county governments that don't fully cooperate in enforcing federal immigration laws. Then, on April 25th, a federal judge temporarily blocked the order nationwide, ruling that the president had exceeded his constitutional powers. Does President Trump have the power to withhold the money himself? Was the executive order just a use of the bully pulpit without any real practical effect? And how could Congress respond to sanctuary cities moving forward? Joining us to discuss this fascinating questions are two of America's leading commentators and scholars of immigration law and the Constitution. Elizabeth Price Foley is of counsel at Baker Hostetler and professor of law at the Florida International University College of Law. Christina Rodriguez is the Samuel Rubin Visiting Professor of Law at Columbia Law School. She's also the Leighton Homer Serbeck Professor of Law at Yale Law School. Elizabeth, Christina, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having us. Elizabeth, let me ask you, as they say in law school, to state the facts. What was going on in this case where a federal judge ruled on April 25th that the executive order was unconstitutional, and what were his constitutional grounds for doing so? Well, it's a good question, Jeffrey. There were a lot of constitutional issues swimming around uh, in this case, uh, decided by Judge Oreck. Uh, it was brought by um, the city and county of San Francisco and I believe also the county of Santa Clara. Um, but uh, the bottom line was that the judge decided uh, that uh, there was a violation of separation of powers uh, through the executive order, uh, specifically what President Trump was doing or trying to do through the executive order was to withhold federal grant money from uh, cities and counties like San Francisco and Santa Clara um, if they violated um, uh, uh, federal statute um, that requires the sharing of certain information about the immigration status of people who are detained by the police forces uh, in cities and counties around the country. Uh, and when he issued that executive order withholding those federal grants, what Judge Oreck said was that he, uh, he usurped essentially the power of Congress because only Congress has the power of the purse or the spending power. So while there's a lot of constitutional wiggle room for Congress to uh, withhold federal funds, there's no constitutional wiggle room for the president to do so. Thanks very much for that great summary. And for further details, uh, listeners can read your great uh, New York Times op-ed, which focused on, uh, to get wonky, Section 1373 of uh, Title Eight of the U.S. Code. That's the relevant provision, which says that states can't prohibit their employees from sharing a person's immigration status. And as you said, the constitutional question was, was that uh, unconstitutional? And the judge held it, that it violated the separation of powers and that all, the, the president... Uh, the president could not do that on his own. Congress might be able to do so. Uh, Christina, would you like to amplify or modify any of Elizabeth's summary of the facts or the constitutional ruling of the case? 
I think one of the most interesting features of the opinion is that the court rejected the government's interpretation of the executive order. The government argued that all the order was doing was enforcing conditions that already existed in a small number of grants given out by the Department of Justice. There are a certain number of grants that uh, require that jurisdictions abide by 1373, what we call Section 1373 of, of 8 U.S.C., 8 U.S. Code, which, as Elizabeth suggested, prohibits state and local jurisdictions from prohibiting their officials from communicating to um, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. So the government's view was that all that the order does is enforce those existing grants. The judge says that would essentially render the order uh, a non-entity, a legal null set, because that would do nothing beyond uh, what is already true in practice. And he instead relied on statements made by the president, made by Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and I think even made by uh, the press secretary, suggesting that what the administration intended to do was far broader than that, that it actually intended to withhold many more grants in which the condition of compliance with the statute was not expressly stated as a law required, and also potentially uh, to penalize state and local jurisdictions that didn't comply with what we call detainer requests, or requests that local police detain individuals who Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, would like to apprehend or take into custody in order to begin removal proceedings. And so taking those statements that had been made by administrative officials, he interpreted the order much more broadly than the government did, and then found that that broad in order is what violated the Constitution. Very interesting. So there are a couple of questions on the table already. The first is, what can the president do by executive order when it comes to the withholding of funds? The second is, what can Congress do? And of course, the third is what this order actually does. So back to you, Elizabeth, you, you wrote in the New York Times that this isn't starting with President Trump in the waning days of the Obama administration. You note, you note when the Justice Department notified recipients of two federal law enforcement grants that they were conditioned on compliance with the same section, Section 1373, this notification was not imposed by Congress, and executive branch guidance cannot substitute constitutionally for an unambiguous condition imposed by Congress. So what I want to focus on in this round is what can the president do on his own when it comes to withholding funds with regard to immigration? What did Obama try to do? What is President Trump trying to do? And do you believe and and and, and acting unilaterally? What could President Trump uh, do by executive order? Yeah, I mean that's a that's an easy question. I think uh, frankly the answer is nothing. Uh, the president <laughs> has no power uh, in this field whatsoever. I mean this power of the purse, this spending power, which is part of the enumerated powers of Congress in Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution, uh, is in Article One, which deals with congressional power, uh, not Article Two, which deals with uh, the presidential power, the executive power. Um, so uh, it's, it's clear to me that Congress uh, alone has this power to impose the strings or conditions on the receipt of federal funds. Uh, this was, um, uh, you know, upheld by the Supreme Court back in the late 1980s in a case called South Dakota versus Dole, um, where basically Congress withheld 10% of federal highway funds uh, as an inducement, if you will, for states uh, to raise their drinking age to 21. Some of us are old enough to remember when we were right on the cliff of, of all that happening. It seems like when I was 18, the drinking age was 19. When I was 19, it was 20. <laughs> when I was 20, it was 21. Uh, so I remember this rather well, but 
essentially the case went all the way up to the Supreme Court as to whether or not Congress had the power to um, attach these kinds of strings on the receipt of federal funds. And think about this string, by the way. I mean, talk about a, an, an, an inducement. I use that uh, word loosely, uh, sort of coercing, if you will, almost states to raise their drinking age. Uh, and that's a classic exercise of state police power. Uh, that Congress alone uh, would not have the authority under the Constitution to impose a national drinking age, at least arguably. Uh, these days the Commerce Clause is so capacious, who knows. Uh, but at least in theory, the Congress even today doesn't have a police power, uh, and raising the drinking age is a classic exercise of police power. Be that as it may, though, the Supreme Court in South Dakota versus Dole upheld this federal uh, withholding of highway funds um, if, if states didn't raise their drinking ages. And the court basically said, Congress can do this. Uh, there are certain requirements that it has to abide by, kind of loose ones, but still, as long as Congress abides by certain requirements, Congress can do this. But there's absolutely no power of the president to do this unilaterally. Thanks very much for that. I must be older than you because I went to college in the happy days when the drinking age was unequivocally 18. So those were very good days indeed. You mentioned the important uh, South Dakota and Dole case from 1987, uh, which actually came down the year after I graduated from college, which said that um, withholding 5% of federal funds wasn't coercive because it represented a loss of only 0.19% of the state's total budget. By contrast, in the affordable health care case, NFIB versus Sibelius, the Supreme Court said Congress violated the anti-coercion doctrine because con Congress was withholding 100% of states' Medicaid funding, which was more than 20% of the state's budget. So, Christina, tell us uh, first whether you agree with Elizabeth that the president can do nothing on his own when in this immigration area, and second, uh, if, if it's okay to withhold 0.1% but not 20% of the budget, um, if Congress were to try to withhold funds here, would that be constitutional? So I think that I agree with most of what Elizabeth said. I, I do think that there is some room, depending on how the terms of the grant program are written in statute, for an administrative agency to impose its own requirements on a grant, uh, including compliance with certain federal laws. I think the crucial point is that those conditions be clearly stated and that they be germane to the grant program. But whether that's the case or not, I think will depend in large part on how Congress has drafted the statute that gives rise to the, the grant programs at issue. And I would be a little reluctant to cede any authority on the executive branch's part to administer funds to which Congress has given it the over which Congress has given it the power um, to distribute among potential grantees. In the case of um, whether Congress could impose restrictions of the sort that the president may or may not want to be imposing himself but cannot because of the limits on his authority, I think that uh, there's an open question of how far Congress could go. The court in NFIB versus Sibelius um, reinvigorated the um, the spending clause doctrine. And especially with respect to the extent to which a condition might ultimately be seen as coercive. So the, the types of grants that we're dealing with here, at least the ones that have the conditions in them already are quite small. And I don't think they would rise to the level of coercion. The states, or I should say the cities, uh, San Francisco and Santa Clara, who brought suit against the executive order are claiming 
that what is actually being threatened is all federal monies. Um, and, and if that were the case, that would be significant, even if we were just talking about federal grants. And the court uh, attributes um, a certain percentage to the grants that rise up to the level of the 20% of the budget that the court in Sibelius found problematic. And so if Congress were to threaten a wide range of grants and impose these conditions on a wide range of grants, then that might be seen as coercive. Uh, the other limitation on Congress, though, would be the germaneness requirement, that the limitations um, or the conditions in the grants would have to be germane to their purpose. And so that, I think, would restrain Congress as well from doing what um, the president has purported uh, that he's doing, and that is to eliminate eligibility for all federal grants. There, there's no way that that would meet the germaneness requirement, uh, even if Congress were to do it. Interesting. Um, Elizabeth, do you agree with Christina's analysis of what Congress could do? Um, and I guess I'll ask, you know, in practice, what might this Congress do over immigration if the courts continue to strike down the president's unilateral action and and W would Congress's action be constitutional? Well, uh, you know, Congress does have some leeway here. The, the requirements of South Dakota versus Dole are, are somewhat light, I would say. That germaneness um, requirement, I think, you know, is, is pretty loosey-goosey. It basically only requires some sort of, sort of reasonable, rational connection between the string or condition being imposed on the federal funds and the reason federal funds are expended. Um, as I said in my in New York Times op-ed, I, I think that right now, uh, if, you, if Congress wants to satisfy that germaneness or reasonable relationship prong, um, it, it's not going to have a difficult time if it imposes a condition of the receipt of federal law enforcement funds uh, for um, compliance with certain federal uh, information sharing uh, mandates. Um, about immigration status, because I, you know, I think one of the reasons why you uh, spend federal law enforcement funds in the first place is to uh, make sure that communities are safer. And if Congress rationally thinks that communities will be safer if local police departments share information about immigration status, uh, then it just passed that germaneness uh, prong of South Dakota versus Dolan and that string would be uh, constitutional so long as it doesn't cross that line into coercion, which uh, we've been touching upon but haven't quite gotten to yet. Um, so I, but I think a separate question is, you know, what if Congress wanted to go a little bigger uh, and wanted to, say, uh, condition the receipt of uh, federal Medicaid funds uh, on um, in, uh, sharing information about immigration status? I, I think that would be a step too far. Um, I think an argument could be made, um, but Congress would have to make it, uh, and I think it would need explicit findings in not only the legislative history, but probably also the explicit preamble to the statute itself. Uh, and I guess the argument would go something like this. One of the reasons we spend federal funds uh, is to, you know, uh, make sure that um, the country is safe as a whole and that everything we do furthers the rule of law, including compliance with information sharing statutes like 1373. You see some shades of this kind of behavior in uh, federal fraud and abuse statutes uh, and compliance therewith in the healthcare arena that I've seen in my own practice uh, that are capacious like this. Um, 
but uh, I haven't seen them challenged. Um, and so if Congress wanted to go big like that, I think it would have a heavy, heavy burden to bear. Uh, I mean, if I were still on the Hill and, and making recommendations to uh, one of my bosses on the relevant committees, I, I would strongly urge them uh, to keep it simple, stupid, uh, and to simply withhold law enforcement funds and to start with that and see how well it worked before you, uh, before you moved any broader into a constitutionally gray area. Interesting. So just to sum up this great uh, discussion so far, listeners, if you want to learn more about the spending clause of the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1, uh, go to the Interactive Constitution and read Professor Sam Bagenstos and Ilya Soman on the spending clause. And as both uh, Elizabeth and Christina have said, read the Dole case, uh, which has sets out a bunch of uh, conditions on the exercise of the spending power. Um, it has to be in pursuit of the general welfare. If Congress wants to condition the state's receipt of funds, it has to be done unambiguously. Uh, conditions have to be related to the federal interest. In other words, they have to be germane. The power can't be used to coerce states to engage in activities that would be unconstitutional, and the inducement can't be so coercive as to turn into compulsion. Uh, Christina, in practice, um, what might Congress do and assume that these unilateral executive actions keep getting struck down. Could you imagine Congress going broad, as Elizabeth said, trying to condition the withholding of Medicaid funds on immigration enforcement? And do you agree with Elizabeth that that going broad would be unconstitutional? So if I could just take a step back and draw a distinction between two types of local quote unquote sanctuary policies that Congress might have in its sites. Uh, the first would be laws that resist the mandates of Section 1373, that local jurisdictions want to be able to control their personnel from communicating with federal immigration authorities. That, that would be a clear violation of Section 1373. But the more common form of a so-called sanctuary jurisdiction is one where local officials refuse to honor a detainer request or refuse to hold on to people who were in their custody for some state or local violation because federal immigration authorities want to take custody and need a day or two in order to be able to do that. Those types of laws are, are widespread. Uh, and there are a lot of big cities as well as small towns that refuse to entangle their police in the actual processes of immigration enforcement on the ground. So I think the question for Congress is how how um, broadly do you want to attempt to regulate this local behavior? Do you want to stick to ensuring compliance with 1373, in which case there are only a handful of jurisdictions that uh, that overtly resist it and, and maybe a smaller number that might incidentally be in conflict with it? Or do you want to target the over 200 jurisdictions around the country who are refusing cooperation, claiming that they have 10th Amendment rights to resist participation in federal law enforcement? So that, that's the first question uh, for Congress. And uh, depending on the political economy of whatever immigration legislation moves through, you could see a gesture towards concern for sanctuary jurisdictions and an attack on violations of 1373, or you could see a real concerted effort to make federal enforcement as effective as possible and force jurisdictions to comply with detainer requests by conditioning funding that it's going to be, it's going to be difficult for them to give up. 
Um, each of those paths raises separate constitutional concerns of their own or questions of their own that we, we might consider. But then the, um, with Elizabeth's framing, how broad do you go? Do you just target law enforcement money or do you target other programs like Medicaid or any other federal program for that matter? And I suspect that, a, a, that Congress would focus on law enforcement funds because that is enough, I think, to get most jurisdictions to comply, even if it wouldn't rise to the level of coercion as legally understood, because a lot of states and localities depend on federal money for law enforcement uh, funds to build up their uh, stockpiles of weapons or te technology or um, a variety of things that they use those federal funds for. And so Congress doesn't really have to go all the way to Medicaid, which would, I think, clearly be in violation of the spending clause doctrine, because it's the germaneness would be very difficult to establish. Um, and so I think that it would be able to accomplish its purposes by staying within what Elizabeth correctly describes as the safe zone of targeting law enforcement funds. Uh, gr great. Um, Elizabeth, could the president stay within that safe zone of targeting law enforcement funds on his own? Uh, the federal government already, as you said, funnels hundreds of millions of dollars a year to local and police courts. Could DOJ or, or President Trump decide to revoke this type of funding uh, without violating the coerciveness doctrine? And if the executive order were interpreted as narrowly as possible, uh, merely to revoke funding for existing grants, might it pass constitutional muster? Well, again, I mean, I, I don't think so. I, I, I see no uh, existing presidential authority uh, that says that uh, the president has the power to impose the strings on the receipt of federal funds. I, I, I believe that belongs solely to Congress, as it should, uh, just as a textual matter under the Constitution. So it doesn't mean it won't be tried, but presidents try a lot of things, and uh, sometimes they get slapped down by courts, uh, you know, this this executive order and others. Um, and uh, so I, I, I don't think he's got any authority in this field. I think it's all up to Congress. The ball is squarely in Congress's court. I, but I do think Christina raises a, a very interesting issue, uh, which is that, you know, 1373, this information sharing statute, um, is, is small potatoes. I mean, not only does it not have uh, any enforcement mechanism in the statute itself, uh, Congress could put one in there uh, if it wanted to and, and condition the receipt of various federal funds um, on compliance with 1373 if it wanted to. It just hasn't done so yet. Uh, but I don't think 1373 is where the action is going to be legislatively. I think if Congress really wants to accomplish its objective, uh, it ought to do what uh, Christina was um, suggesting, frankly, which is to pass a new federal law that says that if you are a state or locality <clears throat> and you um, refuse to actually detain uh, someone when requested by federal immigration authorities, that you lose the following pots of money. Um, it, is, it is really the detention um, where uh, this is going to come down to, I think, and not so much 1373 and information sharing. Uh, and let's be clear, uh, Congress can't just pass a federal statute that says states and localities thou shalt detain. Um, that's clearly a violation of what's called the anti-commandeering doctrine, uh, which was espoused by the Supreme Court in cases like New York, United States versus New York, and, and Prince versus United States. Um, and those anti-commandeering cases are, are a, 
absolutely crystal clear. You can't force state officials to carry out federal law. You can't conscript them to carry about federal law because they're not little sub-agencies of the federal government. They have their own sovereignty that has to be respected. So if you want to carry out or enforce a federal law, you've got to use federal officials to do so. Um, but having said that, um, you can commandeer effectively the states through putting strings on the receipt of federal funds. That's why I took my time in the beginning to talk about what was going on in South Dakota versus Dole, because uh, effectively the withholding of the 10% of federal highway funds in South Dakota versus Dole was a conscription of the state's police power, effectively. Uh, it said if you want this juicy 10% of federal highway funds, you have to uh, raise your drinking age to 21. So Congress can indirectly accomplish through the spending power what it cannot directly accomplish through its commerce uh, power, for example. Um, and if Congress wants to force states to detain as a condition of receipt of federal funds, I think it can do so. Very interesting. Uh, Christina, do you agree with uh, Elizabeth uh, piggybacking off your original suggestion that Congress could, if it wanted, pass a law saying if you're a state and refuse to detain people, you lose the following pots of money? Would that be constitutional? And then I want would like to ask, might that actually happen? C could congressional Republicans uh, pass s such a law uh, in response to judicial orders? And if they do, have then Republicans who used to be the party of federalism become Hamiltonians and, and, and progressives <laughs> also switch sides and, and suddenly become newfound defenders of states' rights? Yes, well, federalism's value always depends on what seat you're sitting in, or often depends on what seat you're sitting in. Um, I do think that it would be in broad outlines constitutional for Congress to enact a statute that conditioned federal funds on honoring detainer requests. Obviously, it matters how that's written, what percentage of funds would be taken away, how do they justify uh, the germaneness requirement, or how do they meet the germaneness requirement. There is, a, there is a separate issue, though, that's starting to percolate its way through the courts that could, at the back end, restrain Congress. And that is that a number of district courts have found that honoring detainer requests actually violates the Fourth Amendment prohibition against search and seizure unless there's probable cause for detaining the, the person uh, who's the subject of the detainer request. And that is uh, the reason why some jurisdictions claim they've adopted non-detainer policies. They're worried about constitutional liability under the Fourth Amendment. That's a novel issue. And it's, I think, I think maybe there's only one court of appeals that's opined on the question, but that could limit the extent to which Congress can, through uh, conditional spending, get local jurisdictions to honor detainer requests. So it will depend a lot on the, the facts of particular cases. Um, and Congress could write its legislation to create the, the condition, but efforts by states subsequently to honor that condition could itself result in constitutional litigation. That that very possibility might lead a district court to actually strike down the, the spending condition altogether um, because it has it might have so many unconstitutional applications. But I, I, it's unclear how far that Fourth Amendment argument goes and, and what would happen. Um, as for the likelihood of the Republican Congress enacting something like this, I, I think it really depends on 
what legislative vehicle they're using. Is it part of a larger attempt at immigration reform? And is this the sort of thing that would so alienate Democratic partners who they would need, I think, to get um, legislation through, particularly through the Senate, that it would become a, a non-starter. And, and I do think senators from major immigrant receiving states like California and New York will s strongly resist something as broad as um, conditioning federal law enforcement funds on compliance with detainer requests. So I, I'm not sure how Republicans will game out those those trade-offs, but I think it would be politically costly for them to do so if what they want in the immigration reform arena is actually uh, something different, like more border enforcement or uh, greater deportations or reducing the number of visas. So it, it all depends on how that legislative bargaining is going to play out. Interesting. Uh, Elizabeth, uh, your, your thoughts on how the legislative bargaining might play out in Congress and the relationship between Congress and the executive. And, and then, as I hear you both saying, uh, talking, this this order is not likely to fare terribly well on appeal because it is unilateral. Uh, so my question is, wh why is it that some cities seem to be responding to it? Miami said it re reversed its policy out of fear of losing federal funding. If it really is so likely that this order will fall on appeal and maybe even before the Supreme Court, why are the states scared of it? Yeah, um, good questions. I, I guess on the so political machinations of, of the Congress, um, I, I think those are, are complicated and they're and you know they're kind of above my pay grade in the sense that um, you know I'll I have enough to worry about uh, pondering the constitutional implications of all this uh, and I'll I'll leave the political you know crystal ball to to someone who knows politics better than I. Um, but um, on the issue of the appellate courts uh, and why are cities caving, um, you know, Miami, where, where I live, um, I think caved. I know it caved before uh, Judge Oreck's decision came down. Um, I think if, he had to, if our local mayor had to do it again, I'm not sure he would cave. Um, and maybe he would. I don't know. I, I think there's something about the politics of Miami where most of the uh, Hispanic population or a large chunk of it is Cuban-American rather than uh, from other, you know, Central or South uh, American countries. Uh, I do think the, the political dynamics are a little different. Um, uh, but um, I, I think that, um, you know, you can see this coming down the pike. I, I think if I'm a politician, uh, I may just uh, try to get ahead of the curve. Uh, frankly, uh, I do think a Republican Congress is likely to uh, soon pass some sort of statute with some sort of strings on the receipt of some sort of federal funds. How broad they go, how big they go, I guess is just part of that political compromise that, that I certainly can't foresee how it will come out right now. But, um, you know, I, I, I do think that um, you might as well sort of brace yourself and get ready for the loss of some federal funds. Uh, if you're going to insist on uh, being a sanctuary city. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Christina, you, you've uh, suggested that the big pressure point is not likely to be over this executive order. Sketch out what the big constitutional debates over immigration will be over the next year. Well, with respect to these federalism questions, I think, as, as I suggested, uh, whether detainers violate the Fourth Amendment is something that I think will continue to, to percolate. And also attract a lot of um, support from immigrants' rights organizations who are trying to push that angle precisely to 
combat the likelihood that spending clause restrictions might be placed on grants that would seek to get local jurisdictions to honor detainers. The the other potentially significant constitutional question that could arise is whether 1373 itself is constitutional. So we can stipulate that all that the order truly does or even or all that it does after Judge Oreck's order is allow the president or DOJ, for that matter, to cancel existing grants that make compliance with 1373 a requirement of the grant. But then that raises the question of whether 1373 itself violates the uh, states and localities' Tenth Amendment interest. And Santa Clara County, in particular, has argued that it does violate 1373 because it seeks to supervise and control the way that its officials interact with the immigrant public by preventing them from passing information onto the federal government. And that's essential to their operations as a local jurisdiction. And that 1373 therefore violates the federalism principles embodied in the 10th Amendment. And there there are some staunch defenders of federalism who think that that's a correct interpretation, that it does in fact violate the Constitution. And so it's possible that we'll end up in a world where what we're assuming is valid federal law actually is is not. Um, And I think that if the lawsuits were to go in that direction, it could lead to some development in the Supreme Court's federalism doctrine, because I think that would require an extension of existing commandeering doctrine, because 1373 doesn't force states or localities to participate in federal immigration enforcement. It interferes with the way that states and localities supervise their own workers and personnel. And, um, and requires information disclosure. And so taking the 10th Amendment doctrine in that direction is potentially novel and could raise some interesting federalism questions that would apply more generally to information disclosure requirements. So that's another possible uh, line of constitutional litigation that might arise. Um, And then I think you could find um, a range of lawsuits that will arise in response to state efforts to prohibit their own localities from becoming sanctuary jurisdictions. So regardless of what the federal government does, can states prohibit their localities from becoming sanctuary jurisdictions or adopting anti-detainer policies? And I think the simple answer to that is is yes, uh, but there, there might be room there for some creative constitutional litigation to restrain state authority vis-a-vis local law enforcement or uh, to build arguments that the federal government can come in in a different administration and support localities against states in their desire to remain sanctuary jurisdictions. Thanks for all those fascinating possibilities. Uh, Elizabeth, your reaction to the several possibilities that Christina mentioned, including the possible unconstitutionality of Section 1373 and restrictions on state power over local law enforcement. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that 1373, as it's currently drafted, is um, is just another information-sharing statute. There's there's a bunch of them uh, on the books. Um, the um, Reno versus Condon, which involved the um, Driver's Privacy Protection Act, required states to share certain information about um, car emissions and other um, information that the states had in their possession already. Um, and that was... Uh, a federal statute that was upheld by the Supreme Court uh, against an anti-commandeering challenge. Um, and then, of course, you've got just a just a panoply of other 
federal statutes that do require information sharing from the states. Um, I, I think that the Reno is instructing. Uh, it's a short decision, so it's uh, you know it's not you know fully explicated on this issue. But um, I think if you read between the lines, the reason why the court wasn't concerned that much in Reno was that the information that the, the states were forced to share under that federal act was information that the states already had in their possessions, and so it didn't require any sort of uh, additional resources or effort to, to collect the information on behalf of the federal government, so they didn't see it as sort of commandeering the states to go beyond what they were already doing. Um, and, and 1373 um, mimics that. It basically says uh, if you have this information, uh, you can't have a policy that prohibits the sharing of it by your people. Um, with regard to the issue of whether or not there could be an anti-commandeering challenge that sort of somehow 1373 interferes with the employer-employee relationship that the state has, um, I don't know. There's no direct um, precedent uh, on that point. Um, I think it would be a really interesting question that kind of reminds me of an old case called National League of Cities versus Ossery, uh, which was overruled by the Supreme Court in a case called Garcia. But um, I, I think that Congress probably is aware of uh, this issue, which is why I personally um, believe that 1373 is, 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 was intended to be a nothing burger. It is a nothing burger, and that, I don't think 1373 is going to be where Congress focuses its action in the future. I, I do think that Congress um, is going to try to enact uh, a mandatory detainer statute using its spending power and withholding federal law enforcement funds. Uh, and when it does that, if that's the basis for congressional action, then, then these, these questions become sort of mooted out. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, the, I think the interesting question may be one of coercion, but I think that can be avoided, too, as long as Congress uh, only withholds uh, small pools of money, or relatively small pools of money, small as compared to the Medicaid funds, 100% of federal Medicaid funds that were withheld in uh, NFIB versus Sebelius, which did cross the line into unconstitutional coercion. So I think as long as they stay uh, south of 100% of a large fund, a pool of federal funds, uh, they'll avoid the, uh, the coercion problems, too. Uh, great. Well, um, Christina, what's what I've learned most from this discussion so far and been most surprised by is that both of you seem to feel that the sanctuary cities really do have broad discretion to resist uh, being uh, enlisted by the federal government, and that uh, many of the immediate uh, restrictions on the horizon may be struck down. Um, if if the President Trump were to succeed in blocking the efforts of sanctuary cities, what's, what's the most likely area on the horizon? Well, I think that the, the most likely effect of both this executive order and then any further action would be uh, political intimidation. Um, that uh, the fact that Miami-Dade rescinded its its sanctuary policy when as soon as this order came out suggests that cities are um, going to behave in an ex ante fashion to try to protect themselves. There may have been political motivations for that as well. It may be that 
uh, the the mayor was actually not that supportive of the policy, and this was a good excuse for abandoning it. But because of the legal restrictions on the president's authority to act unilaterally, given that right now under the status quo, the Department of Justice would be limited to rescinding grants that already have this condition of compliance with 1373 expressly stated, it's going to be political pressure. It's going to have the biggest impact on state and local jurisdictions and possibly also the threat of a congressional statute on down the line. Uh, so part of what I think the city of San Francisco is trying to do here and what Santa Clara and other jurisdictions that have filed suit is to, to build a bulkhead of resistance to marshal constitutional arguments, but also uh, public opinion to the extent they can on their side as a way of trying to resist the the political pressure. I think a lot of the statements the administration has made um, from the president down to the attorney general to the press secretary have been uh, to try to make it seem as if there is a muscular set of policies that could be brought to bear on local jurisdictions to get compliance that way, even though there's not that much legally speaking that the administration can do on its own. And uh, who knows if that will work. It's also the case that the administration is trying to build groundwork, I think, for nurturing cooperation in those jurisdictions that are predisposed towards it and that are favorable towards it. And there are, there are many of those as well. And so by creating a political climate where uh, that's sought after and where local jurisdictions might, in fact, enter into affirmative cooperative arrangements with the federal government, which is also provided for uh, under federal law, that could serve the administration's enforcement agenda as well. And so this this immigration order, this executive order, might be part of that larger strategy. Thank you very much for that. Elizabeth, same question to you, and then we'll have closing arguments. What is the area in which the president is most likely to uh, exercise control over sanctuary cities in the next year? Do, do you agree with Christina that it's mostly the bully pulpit, uh, or there are there other legal avenues available to him? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, I I hate to be too cynical about it, but I think this executive order was issued, you know, in the first 30 days or so of uh, the president assuming office, along with that travel ban. I think they were relatively contemporaneous with each other. And, um, you know, there wasn't a, a, a real uh, robust staff in place to vet this um, in the normal procedures. Uh, and I think that that was a critical mistake. I think if you if you've got a bunch of lawyers uh, who put their hands all over this document before it was issued, I think you can just see from the way Christina and I are, are agreeing on a lot of these issues that um, you know um, it, it probably would not have been issued in in the way that it was with the language that it had um, if it had been vetted by you know the usual cadre of lawyers. Um, and uh, so I think that that was just a, a mistake, but you can't take it back, and it got challenged, and it is what it is. And I, I think any president's going to try to salvage um, at least his face uh, and use the bully pulpit to, uh, sort of a public relations effort uh, to get the American people or keep the American people behind his effort. Um, and, I, you know, I think he will ultimately lose on this in the court, and then it's going to be up to Congress. And, and and I think the president is learning a tough lesson. I think a lot of presidents have to learn this lesson, but uh, you're president, but um, president only goes so far, right? You know, if you pick up the constant pocket constitution, you read article two, uh, it's amazing how short it is, especially compared to say article one. 
Um, and uh, even though it's a great job, uh, it doesn't uh, carry that much power, certainly not domestically. You've got a lot of power as commander-in-chief and with regard to foreign affairs, and et cetera, but domestically, you know, pretty much zip. And um, so he has to, you know, wait for Congress to, to hit this ball back over the net to him, uh, and then he can sign it into law uh, and then faithfully execute uh, that law once it's uh, signed by him. Um, but that's pretty much the extent of his constitutional power. And with regard to, you know, the whole federalism issue, I, I, I'm really happy that the courts are are enforcing the concept of federalism. If you're a federalist as I am, you can't be sort of a, a good time or fair weather federalist. You have to be a federalist all the way through. Um, so I, I don't care if it's a, a liberal or a conservative who invokes federalism. A federalism isn't a conservative thing, and it isn't a liberal thing. It's an American thing. It's a constitutional thing. And so any judge that enforces it, including Judge Oreck, uh, I think is doing all of the American people a favor. Fascinating. Well, it is time for closing arguments. It turns out that both of you are uh, on the same side of this constitutional case, but I'll ask you to sum up your arguments for our listeners. Uh, Christina, first to you, why do you believe that President Trump's immigration order is unconstitutional and that the Supreme Court is likely to strike it down? And why should our listeners care about it? So I should I should say that I, I'm not convinced that the order itself is unconstitutional, because if you read it the way the government did, all that it calls for is the enforcement of existing conditions on grants. The district court decided not to read it that way, it decided to take the president's and the attorney general's extramural statements about it, their broader intentions and to evaluate those. And to the extent those broader intentions are to cut off all federal monies, that's clear the president has no power to do that. And to the extent those broader intentions are to require states to honor detainer requests, it's also clear that the president does not have the power to do that. And, and only Congress could do that, not through direct regulation, but through some form of conditional spending grant. Uh, so if we read the order narrowly, then it just leaves in place the legal status quo. But I do think that taking a position on what the limits of the president's power are uh, is useful for litigants to have done and arguably also for the court. My, my preference would have been for the court to read the order narrowly the way the government did and to say this order was essentially um, dead on arrival in the sense that it didn't do anything more than just reinforce existing law. And that would have diffused the, the situation a bit, uh, but the, the decision instead joins the larger political debate, larger constitutional debate. And to the extent we're having it, I think that it's clear that the president's authority to do anything other than through words uh, in, intimidate local jurisdictions is, is extremely limited. Many thanks for that. Elizabeth, last word to you, and I'll phrase the question uh, more neutrally. Do you believe that the president's immigration order is unconstitutional and that the Supreme Court is likely to strike it down? And why? And why should our listeners care about it? Well, you know, let me just say, I'm not, I'm not sure we're going to get to the Supreme Court on this. Uh, I'm not sure that um, the president, uh, assuming he loses in the federal appellate level, um, is going to spend his resources taking this to the Supreme Court. I think if he loses at both levels, uh, he, he may be well advised to just let the sleeping dog lie. 
Um, but I, I will disagree with Christina just slightly in the sense that when I read this executive order, um, you know, it's, it's broad. Uh, and it basically says that uh, all jurisdictions shall comply with that federal statute, Section 1373, that we've been discussing, and that in furtherance of that policy of enforcing 1373, the Attorney General and the Secretary of Homeland Security are instructed to um, withhold federal grants for law enforcement uh, to ensure uh, until such time as the jurisdictions comply with 1373. Um, that the, the executive branch cannot do. Um, those federal grants um, are, um, if, if that kind of condition on the receipt of federal funds um, is going to be imposed, it can only be imposed by Congress. And even the Obama administration, when it tried to um, condition the receipt of two different types of funds, law enforcement funds, on compliance with 1373 in the waning days of its own administration, uh, I think that was patently unconstitutional. Um, if, if the strings are going to be imposed, they have to be imposed by Congress uh, and not the president. So I don't think there's anything that the president can constitutionally do. Uh, I think this is, this is solely within Congress's court, as it should be. Um, and um, we'll just see whether, you know, what kind of willpower Congress can, can uh, come up with to um, try to, quote-unquote, punish sanctuary cities um, who fail to either share information or detain uh, undocumented individuals. Um, and that's going to be an interesting political debate to watch, and I wouldn't want to try to predict the outcome. I don't know about you guys. Um, thank you so much, Elizabeth Price Foley and Christina Rodriguez, for a stimulating, substantive, thought-provoking, and educational discussion of the immigration debate and the Constitution this will continue to be one of the most central constitutional debates over the next year, and we'll hope to reconvene soon to further educate ourselves and our listeners. Elizabeth, Christina, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Today's show was engineered by Kevin Kilborn and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using @ConstitutionCTR. Sign up to receive Constitution Weekly, our email roundup of constitutional news and debate at bit.ly forward slash Constitution Weekly. So much cool stuff this week, including a link to this great new interactive where you can compare the various drafts of the Constitution online. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. And finally, we have this great congressional charter, but remember, the Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. It receives little government support. I want you, we the people listeners, we just did a survey and found out that too small a percentage of you are members of the National Constitution Center. You must go to the website and sign up as members. Any level is fine, $5, $10, it doesn't matter, but you have to become a member of this beautiful community of lifelong constitutional learners and you have to get our emails and notices and support this crucial work of teaching and educating ourselves and America about the U.S. Constitution. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.